History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. We've come to realize they don't have to go untold as long as we're willing to ask a few questions and then to listen patiently as memories from long ago take on new meaning in the here and now. We want to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice. We want to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And along the way, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from men and women who have put their lives on the line so the rest of us wouldn't have to. The gentleman I have the privilege of introducing you to today spent 30 years in the United States Marine Corps. He was wounded in action during the Korean War and again in the Vietnam War and was involved in something in between those two that he sees as even more significant. 90-year-old Bill Helton of Clovis, California is our guest today and we'll start with his childhood in Kentucky. I did not like school when I was in school. From when I was about 12 years on, I always had one or two jobs. I came from a broken home. My parents divorced when I was about six years old, and I lived in Kentucky with grandparents. I wound up during World War II. There was a shortage of men. It was easy to get jobs. The first job I got was on a truck when I was about 12 years old. The owner of the truck had gone into the service. He was delivering bread, and his wife had to take over. When summer came around, she wanted off, so she was able to find an old 40-year-old who couldn't read or write in Kentucky that could drive. So she hired me to go along and collect the money, do all the paperwork, and I started that. And then I worked in a bakery on the holidays. And on Saturdays and Sundays, I worked in a bakery. Our chief baker at that time was 16 years old. They had permission from the schools for him to work. But I wanted in the Marine Corps. I read in the paper where young 15-year-old had his brother's birth certificate or lied about his age and got into service and was a hero. My poor mother, I drove her batty wanting to go into service. And she says, no, when you graduate from high school, I'll let you go, but not before. But I wanted to go in, and uh, that was it. Well, and I want everybody to hear how you pulled that off, but you mentioned World War II, and and you're a a child growing up in this time. You're nine years old when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. You're telling us how badly you wanted to get into the Marine Corps. Did any of that have to do with your father's service in the Marine Corps in World War II? It definitely did. He was 33 when he went in. He did not have to go. He was an engineer, had a wartime job that exempted him. But during World War II, it was a time where everybody wanted to go. It wasn't like, you know, I'm getting drafted, I have to go. He had to plead to get in, and he did go in at 33 and wound up in Marine Corps aviation in the Pacific. In fact, he spent some time as one of those rear-facing gunners on dive bombers? He went to school in Norman, Oklahoma. They kept him there as an instructor, and 
after a year or so he was able to get on and he flew backwards he was uh, not wounded uh, the only time he was hurt in action he said the pilot landed one time on a carrier and forgot to take the wheels down he got a pretty bad hit over that his claim to fame on the service or what he liked and norman he would love being the payroll guard he would go along with the payroll officer in his green dress uniform carrying his thompson submachine gun that was the greatest part of the war he loved weapons before he passed away he had alzheimer's and he went through the house constant looking for his tommy gun so you knew your father had served in world war ii and these are the years just after world war ii and you're actually at a, a boarding school at the time but you played a little bit of a trick on your parents to get into the Marine Corps. Can you explain that to us? On my 17th birthday, I walked up to the principal. I was going to boarding school, Brea College in Kentucky, but I was going to high school. But anyway, on my 17th birthday, I went up and says, I quit. I'm going in the service. And he says, go home, talk it over with your parents. If you decide to come back, no problems. You're welcome to come back. Instead of going home, I hitchhiked. Hitchhiking was pretty common at that time. I hitchhiked to Cincinnati, which is about 150 miles the opposite direction from my home, went to the recruiting station, got two copies of parents' consent forms. The recruiter's name was Nathan Hale, of all things. <laughs> but anyway, I got two copies. I went to my, my dad lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I went to him and I told him that mother had signed the papers and we needed him to sign a copy, and that way we didn't have to take divorce papers. He uh, went ahead and signed. Then I went home to my grandparents in Kentucky, and my mother was uh, she was trying to raise two teenagers. I have a sister, and I mailed her the copy and told her that I was out of school, couldn't get back in. Dad had signed the papers, and she'd have to go to court to keep me out. My poor mother, she had no choice but to go ahead and sign. So I went in in 1949, I, my seven, right after my 17th birthday. Uh, it was a week or so later before I could get the papers all back, but I always claimed that I went in on my 17th birthday. And how long did it take your mom and dad to figure out how you'd tricked them? They never mentioned it to me, so I, I don't know how long it took. And my dad probably was glad that I was in. They both wanted me to get education. Well, the Marine Corps would give you quite an education in Korea and Vietnam, but this is 1949 when you go in, and no one's expecting another war to break out uh, less than a year later. And I read something in, in your memoirs that I wasn't familiar with or I hadn't heard about in all the veterans I've talked to. You wrote in there that scuttlebutt was that President Truman wanted to eliminate the Marine Corps. He wanted to get rid of it? That was no scuttlebutt. President Truman was an Army artillery captain in Europe during World War II. He stated that he was going to do away with the Marine Corps. They were a naval police force, and that was all they were going to be. After the Korean War broke out, I have been told that Truman apologized to the Marine Corps and said that had it not been for the Marine Corps, there would have been no Korea today. And if it hadn't been for Korea, there would have been no Marine Corps. So they saved each other, and uh, Truman did go along and started supporting the Marine Corps. We went from, when the war broke out, we did not have a full division. Within a year, 
the Marine Corps had three full Marine divisions. And that was an interesting uh, mix of people in those divisions. You served with a lot of World War II veterans, even Medal of Honor recipients from World War II, but also a lot of relatively untrained teenagers. And you were a teenager, 18 years old, when you got to Korea, January of 1951. What do you remember? What was your first impression of Korea? When I got to Korea, I'd been in the Marine Corps just about a year, probably about 13 months. And of that, three months was boot camp. But anyway, I figured I was an old salt. The war started July of 1950. I didn't get there until January of 51. When I got there, the Marine Corps had completed the Chosen Reservoir campaign, and they'd pulled out and had pulled back into Hongnam and had moved up to Pohang, and they were in reserve trying to recuperate. Being that the Marine Corps only had a brigade to go in initially, they had one battalion that was on a med cruise in the Mediterranean, and they took them through the canal, Suez Canal. They landed at Incheon, and their cars and clothes and everything was left at Lejeune. A lot of them never made it home. When I got to Korea, I was an old salt, even though I hadn't seen any of the battle or anything. And in March, promotions came out. And since I was an old salt with a year in service, I made corporal, and a lot of the reserves who had fought at Chosen did not get promoted. They had a lot of them had not been through boot camp. You ended up serving with a lot of guys who had survived the, the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. And I'm guessing when you got there in January, it was still pretty cold. In fact, I think you wrote that the cargo nets you climbed down off the ship were frozen. The cargo nets were frozen. We climbed off the ship into, we had the duck, the uh, amphibious vehicle we went ashore on, but we went down and frozen. It was cold at night. We always slept with our socks under our armpits and had to sleep with our canteens with us under our arms. And when we'd open the sea rations, you'd open a can of, of pork and beans, which was a choice, and it would be about like peanut brittle. Anyway, when we was on patrols, we'd open it and uh, throw the cans over the hill and eat the crackers, and the, there was a chocolate wafer in there, and that was about it. The food wasn't that great. Nor was the weather, and, and so we understand, because most people listening weren't there, how cold did it get, and, and what did you guys have to guard against some of those freezing conditions? Up until after Chosen, the Marine Corps did not have cold weather gear. When I landed, I was wearing my dress green trousers with a battle jacket, had the leather boots. I'd say within a month, they came out with our cold weather clothing. As far as the weather, I don't really remember how cold it got, but we liked when it snowed, it was actually warm. So if you woke up warm, that means you was probably covered with snow. I never pitched tents. I would just lay on the ground and put my poncho over me, let the rain and snow or whatever would go over me. I don't know how many people are listening to that and, and volunteering to be in your shoes. So here you are, you're a teenager over there, and you're getting your first taste of combat. We were in Pohang recuperating from Chosen, and we went out on training patrols. On about the first patrol I went out on, company had about 200 men, and here we're stretched out, uh, 200 men at six paces apart, 
going through rice paddies, all of a sudden we heard a screech through the air, and it turned out to be a North Korean 88 weapon. It hit close to us, and of all things, one of my best friends that went over was the only one he was killed from a piece of shrapnel from that round. With me, I think with the training I had had, basic training gives you a lot of history. We take history classes. It just, I thought I belonged. Well, and you mentioned, you know, losing a close friend, and you write about a time where it would have been you, that a mortar hit right in your hole, but it was a dud? Normally, we fought in the mountains. Very seldom we were down in low ground. Again, the company would be moving through the uh, at six paces apart, and when we would run into the enemy, there was only enough room for about one platoon. A company has three rifle platoons, and only one platoon at a time could engage the enemy. So the rest of us would dig a hole, or there was a lot of holes already dug where we'd been going back and forth, and I was laying alongside my hole, sleeping, and all of a sudden, I heard a big push, and a 82-millimeter enemy mortar round had hit in my hole, and it had failed to go. It Something was wrong with it. They probably didn't pull a pin out or something, but it did not go off. And had I been in the, the hole, I think the mortar itself would have probably done a lot of damage hitting me. But I was late. And any time we would stop and take breaks, we were so tired from moving all day and standing watches hour on and hour off all night, we'd usually fall asleep. A couple of people would be on security and everybody else would be sleeping. When we had to move out, they'd have to go around waking everybody up. And just to be clear, was that common for you to sleep right outside your hole as opposed to in it? Or was that just something you did that one time that ended up saving your life? It wasn't common because normally I didn't have a hole. I dug very, very few holes. The only hole I remember digging, I was trying to dig with my canteen cup when we were getting shelled. But I never dug holes unless I have to. And uh, for the first part of the Korean War, we didn't wear helmets. Latter part, they started requiring helmets. We had no flak jackets. All we had was our waterproof or winter clothing and with our parkas. You would eventually get the Purple Heart there, but before that, you were wounded and didn't get a Purple Heart. Your your tank ran over a mine? That must not have felt very good. It, we were on one patrol riding a tank. The roads were mined so bad that most of the tanks would try to ride in the dried riverbeds or the riverbeds. This one time, we were on a tank. Tank hit a mine. We blew off. We got blown off the tank and picked up shrapnel. Didn't turn in for Purple Hearts. Two or three days later, we set up in another area and a four-point deuce mortar set up, and they didn't clear their field of fire. There was comm wire went by. The mortar went off, hit the comm wire, went off. Again, we got some shrapnel. And we're going to hear about September 11th, 1951, which you referred to as the worst day of your life and what happened there. But you actually ended up on a hospital ship before that. What put you on the hospital ship? It was dehydration. I don't know what it was, but anyway... I got evacuated. At the time, they sent me to battalion, told me to go to report to battalion aid. So I go to battalion aid. I stay there for about an hour. They says, well, we're getting heavy casualties in. So they sent me to an Army med hospital. 
I went there. They took my clothes off. When I got out, I got Army uniform. The one advantage that Marine it was during the summer, Marine Corps did not have boots. Marine Corps had old fill shoes with canvas leggings, and the Army had boots, so I got a pair of boots, and I had the boots for about a day, and they evacuated me to another hospital. And again, they took my clothes off two or three hours. They said, you got to move out. So they gave me another set of new clothes and boots. And I went up and I went to another hospital. And then I wound up on the USS Repose hospital ship. And the nurse come behind and she assigned me a, she says, you got to have a cleanup detail. And I says, no, ma'am, I'm a Marine Corporal and we don't sweep down. We supervise. She says, well... Either you'll sweep down or you'll go back to your unit. And I says, I want to go back to my unit. I didn't want to be here. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I got sent back to the unit. And the next day, the repos went to Japan. And I missed out on a trip of a couple of days in Japan because I wouldn't sweep down. But anyway, uh, when I did get wounded, I would not go to the hospital. Yeah, and I want to hear about that, but just to tie a bow on, on this situation so people understand, you said dehydration. I mean, it sounds like you were just pushing yourself so hard, your body was giving out on you. That was it. I mean, this was the time when we were back trying to string our concertina wire and set it up. It got the best of me. It's time for our first break, but when we come back, a day Bill Helton calls the worst day of his life and a battle that would claim the lives of 22 Marines. Bill would be one of 245 wounded. You can find photos of Bill Helton then and now at hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes page on Facebook, and we'll be right back after this. Ever feel like that dollar just doesn't go as far anymore? Well, join the club. Actually, you really should join the club. I mean, join the more than 350,000 members of EECU, the not-for-profit credit union now in 12 California counties. Free online and mobile banking, more than 30,000 co-op ATMs, and not just fair, but fantastic rates on auto loans, mortgages, and home equity lines of credit. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today, or just call this number, 1-800-538-3328. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to hometownheroesradio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes, celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. 
Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our visit with 90-year-old Bill Helton of Clovis, California. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And for him, 30 years in uniform. I mentioned he was wounded in both the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Let's talk about that day you were wounded in Korea. We think of September 11th now and we think 2001, but 50 years before, here you are in this forgotten war. Why do you refer to that as the worst day of your life? September the 11th, our battalion was supposed to take Hill 673. The battalion has three companies, Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie Company. On the first day, Alpha Company had tried to take it, and the enemy was dug in. The North Koreans were dug in on top of this hill. They had uh, huge logs over their fighting holes with dirt over it, and it was covered with uh, pine vegetation on this hill. Well, Alpha Company had tried in the morning to take it and had heavy casualties that couldn't take it. So that afternoon, Bravo Company tried to take it. They couldn't take it. They had heavy casualties. That night, they decided Charlie Company, we had marched the previous day all day, but that night, they said, Charlie Company will ta- have a night attack. So we moved out at nighttime, going around the hill to hit it on the uh, west side of the hill. Again, the company stretched out, 200-some men, six paces apart, which is quite a little. And while we're moving out, explosions were going off around us. We kept moving, and we were having casualties. And anyway, about midnight, they decided, uh, well, they thought we were getting mortared. But by midnight, somebody said, hey, we're not getting mortared. We're in a minefield. So they just said, okay. We're going to have to go back. So we turn around, and we're trying to pull back. And here it's dark, no moon, and we're trying to follow the man in front of you, staying far enough back so you both don't get hit if a round comes in. You're following him, trying to walk in his footprint, carrying the wounded and the the dead. We got back about 6 o'clock in the morning, and they said, okay, we're going to consolidate the entire battalion, and we're going to take this hill 0800. With all three, we weren't very well organized. It was just they were just people there. The machine gunners dug in at the bottom of the hill, and we start up the hill. Now the hill was covered with pine limbs, pine branches. They had had a airstrike on the hill prior to us trying to go up to wipe the enemy out. So we take off, charging up the hill. The enemy's got machine guns locked in, firing down, and we have heavy casualties coming from the machine gun fire. And at one time, I figured, you know, I don't think we're going to make it. I think I'll go back. And I turned and looked back down the hill, and they had friendly machine gun fire behind us. The machine gunners had dug in so deep and when they were getting fired, they weren't watching where they were firing. So I figured, uh-oh, if I'm going to get killed, I think it'll be the enemy. So I'm not going to get killed but friendly fire. So I go up the hill, and the hill was booby-trapped. They had hand grenades tied to the trees with wire into the pins, and the pins fixed out where when you hit the wire, the hand grenade explode. I see this booby trap and I stop and another marine runs by I says 
booby trap. He looks at it, and he takes and runs right through it. He ignores it. The grenade went off, and it was a Chinese grenade. It wasn't one of our grenades. And anyway, when the grenade went off, he stopped, stood up in the machine gun fire all around him, dropped his drawers, make sure he had all of his parts, pulled his pants up, and went on up the hill. It was probably about 1700, 5 o'clock, before we did uh, get the hill. And when we got the top, there was bunkers up there, and most of our Marines uh, used grenades for our weapons. The machine gunners were at the bottom of the hill, but we were between them. And anyway, when I uh, got up, I threw a hand grenade in the bunker, and one came out and blew me up. And I had blood and shrapnel all over me. And uh, But anyway, this time, the corpsman was not going to send me to uh, sick bay. I told him, I, I'm not going to sick bay. And it surprised me. It was a year later when I was stationed in Washington, D.C., that I wound up getting a Purple Heart for it. That I d- did not know that I had been put in for it. And so we understand. Uh, what was the extent of your injuries? It was shrapnel, a concussion and shrapnel wounds. And where was all the shrapnel? It was on my head and upper body parts. We wound up, I think we lost, from our company, we lost about 22 people. And uh, one Marine did get a posthumous Medal of Honor who was going up with me. The greatest thing about it was Eddie LeBaron was there going. He was the only officer at the time that I run into was my hero, Eddie, and that helped me. Well, I'm just uh, trying to imagine this, and you you know, this happened in your life 70 years ago, and you can describe it like it's no big deal, but you've got a concussion and shrapnel all over your face from a hand grenade that exploded very close to you. So we say, boy, how far was that from killing you? That That's a pretty slim margin, isn't it? I never worried about dying. That That was something that never bothered me, and I always said, I've got the slogan, the wicked never die young. It's only the good people, my good friends, that get killed. How often do you think about those guys? We know there are 58,000 names on the wall for the Vietnam War, and you were over there for a good chunk of that war, and and now they've added 36,000 American names to the Korean War Memorial in D.C., and you knew quite a few in, in both of those. How often do you think of those guys and how would you say we should remember them? I constantly think about them. I think the United States should, on Memorial Day and all the time, think about them. That, that, that's it. And you mentioned being surprised when they pinned the Purple Heart on you at a sunset parade in Washington, D.C., the famous 8th and I there. And your time there in D.C., uh, you met some pretty famous people, didn't you? Or at least were part of ceremonies for them. We had to meet all the dignitaries that came in. And uh, one time, I think, Haile Selassie came in, and we had to meet him. And he kissed all the Marines, uh, the front rank. He kissed them all on both cheeks and put a medal on them. We had a few dinners for congressmen. I made a parade for Queen Elizabeth. She came over. We stood probably about eight hours out in the sun on Pennsylvania Avenue, choking. The cars were still running through. And I was on a corner, and there prayed rest. Marines only have one dress blue uniform, and it's wool at that time. I don't know now. But anyway, we was out there, and I'm standing at prayed rest, and 
people would come up and talk to you and try to get you to talk. And I did not like being stationed in D.C. That was, and I requested to get back to the infantry. And for, I'd say, for the next 20-some years, every fitness report had 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Division on it. And I went back to them quite a few times, but I had trouble staying there. Uh, Marine Corps wanted to give me good duty all the time. So you serve in the Korean War. We heard about the Purple Heart. We're going to hear about the Purple Heart you got in Vietnam. But there are a lot of years in between there. And you talked about Washington, D.C. Then you end up sea duty on a carrier, the USS Leyte, and then a cruiser, the Northampton. You became a pilot, served with the Civil Air Patrol. You actually climbed Mount Fuji when you were in Japan, and you met your wife. But, you know, I've heard a lot of stories about how guys met their wives, and a lot of them got married pretty quickly. But I don't think I've heard one quite like this, because the first impression you made on her was probably not the best one. I uh, met my wife at the Marine Corps birthday ball in 1959, at the time, she, she was with somebody else, and uh, my dancing with her, I did spill champagne on her, but I met her on the 10th of November, and on the 30th of that year, we were married. I was a drill instructor at Paris Island, and everybody says, it'll never last, it'll never last, and we're still together many years later. I'm trying to put two and two together here. You meet her. You spill champagne on her while you're dancing, but she marries you less than three weeks later. So how'd you pull that off? That I don't know. We had about, I'd say, two dates. I was a drill instructor with a platoon at Paris Island, and I didn't have much time off. I worked a lot of nights, and uh, I told everybody, I'm going to get married on Washington Press. Really, it wasn't Washington Press. I got off the first week of the rifle range, and we got married. Uh, we went to Charleston, South Carolina for a couple of days. And we got married at Charleston. We moved into government quarters at Paris Island. And you said people told you it never lasts, but here you are 64 years later. Uh, so I got to ask what your secret has been. <laughs> what, what did you guys do right that you're still together? Well, she says that I was gone most of the time. Uh, our son was born, I left home, and I came back when he was 18. <laughs> not really that bad, but I did have a, a lot of time away, and uh, we did not get uh, overseas tours together. We almost had one in Holy Lock, Scotland, but they canceled it and sent me to San Diego. It's time for our final break, but when we come back, not only his closest calls in Vietnam, but also what he was doing during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Purple Heart Marine Bill Helton of Clovis, California, is our guest today, and we'll be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. 
growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today, 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors, and presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments, one of the fastest-growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes. If you head over to HometownHeroesRadio.com or the Hometown Heroes page on Facebook, you'll find a short video of Bill Helton describing the day he was wounded in Korea at the tender age of 18. You can see what a baby-faced Marine he was when he enlisted at 17 and also see what he looks like now. At different times in his 30 years in the Marine Corps, he was ordered to both shave his signature mustache and grow it back. We heard how he met his wife of nearly 64 years, Barbara, and... We know you're wounded in Korea and Vietnam, but in between, you know, there was a, a little thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we don't talk about that all that much. And, and sometimes I'm struck by the reality that as significant as the things that happened are, sometimes the things that didn't happen or almost happened are just as significant. And while Kennedy and Khrushchev are doing all their uh, posturing, you're actually on the ground in Cuba creating infantry defenses for land warfare, right? For the Cuban Missile Crisis, I figure that uh, all my years in the Marine Corps, that was my most important operation. It was far more important to the United States than Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, or any of these other countries. In fact, the Cuban Missile Crisis was a lot more important than a lot of the islands in the Pacific that we should have bypassed. The Marine Corps had an operation going on in Viegas, Puerto Rico. So they didn't, I went in and I told Barbara, I said, Barbara, I'll be a little late. It was a Sunday. And I told Barbara, I said, I'll be a little late coming home. I says, keep the roast on. Anyway, I went in and they loaded four trucks, give us our weapons, took us to Cherry Point put us on airplanes, we went up in the air, and we were, thought we were going to Vegas. And we land on an airstrip someplace in uh, the Caribbean, and turned out uh, the pilot says, you're in uh, Gitmo, Cuba. My friend says, well, don't worry, uh, we've got live ammunition, but we don't have grenades. Then a messenger came around and says, all platoon sergeants, go over and draw your grenades. So I went over to get grenades, and it says, oh, you can't have these. Uh, these belong to the 1st uh, Marine Division, and we were 2nd Division. Two divisions of Marine Corps hadn't been together since World War II. But anyhow, uh-oh, something's wrong. My lieutenant, uh, I had 
rifle platoon of 44 men, but my lieutenant was, uh, he was going to legal school in Rhode Island. So I had the platoon without an officer. Some of the troops were on leave, and I had, I think I had out of 40 men, I think I had about 27 or 28, and it was the largest platoon. And anyway, he'd get mowing, says, okay, we're moving out. And uh, about dusk, we set up in a chief housing area. We didn't set up. We just lay down and slept on the ground. And there happened to be a mailbox in the area. They give us a box of sea rations, had cardboard in it. And I took out the cardboard out and wrote a note on it, addressed it to Barbara, my wife, put a stamp on it that was in my wallet, and dropped it in the mailbox, telling her that, hey, we're in Gitmo. And we're not in Vegas. She got the letter, and uh, they took us through the uh, the area, and the next day we went to the rifle range in Cuba. They said, you're going to dig in on the rifle range. The rifle range was at a low ground, and uh, I think it was uh, a mountain. Uh, Loma Pacote was on the other side. The rifle range and then a fence line, over to Cuba. The Cuban National Guard was supposed to be manned in the fence line, and that's what I was worried about because, you know, with seasoned troops, no problem. But when you got National Guard or civilians, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. But anyway, we dug in facing the uh, fence, and between us was a minefield of 55,000 unmarked mines. And, but we're dug in and then told us that... Uh, we're going to have to make a permanent position. So they came up and told me, okay, uh, Sergeant, mark where you want your platoon holes, and uh, we're going to have CBs come up and build these bunkers. And they built huge bunkers with thick steel cement over them. And they says, we want bunkers for a whole platoon, not just your 27 or 28 men. So anyway, and uh, the troops have smoked, at night, they couldn't smoke because they didn't want the Cubans to see where we were. But while they were building, the CBs were building the holes, they had their spotlights that were working around us. <laughs> and it, it was okay they could spot us with the spotlight. And uh, anyway, we sat there for at least 30 days or longer. We were in Cuba for the uh, missile crisis. Here, about a few years ago on uh, public television, they had a special on the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I didn't realize how bad off we were. The United States had sacrificed, or we'd, they'd marked off the troops in Gitmo. Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, is on the southern tip of Cuba. The United States had all their seasoned troops, the ones that had more training than us, on the aboard ship, and were going to invade the north end of Cuba. They figured the Cubans would use it. Uh, they did not have regular weapons. Uh, they had atomic-type weapons. And so we would have been marked off had it not ended like it did. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying you guys there defending the American base at Guantanamo, you were expendable. You would have been the sacrificial lambs yes. in this operation. We were, and... Uh, Anyway, from what I understand, is the president had made an agreement with the Joint Chiefs of Staff that if any planes or anybody gets killed in Cuba, they can bomb. 
the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted to bomb. They were kind of upset about having to pull out of Korea like they did, and they wanted to bomb. And uh, anyway, the president asked them, can you get all the missiles they spotted? And they said, well, we can get 90% of them. They figured 10% of the Cuban missiles, Castro wanted to, to fire on the United States, but with 10% of the missiles, atomic weapons would have wiped out the East Coast, probably a third of the population of the United States. People don't realize that. That's a lot more important to the United States than us defending Korea or Vietnam. We would have lost a third of the population had they not settled it. And uh, with the settlement, Kennedy made a deal with Khrushchev that he would pull the missiles out of Turkey and Greece if Khrushchev would take them out of Guantanamo, but don't let the American public know about it. They did not want this. And uh, in fact, uh, they pulled a lot of the stuff out of our record books because they did not want, we'd been put in for a unit citation. And no, we want to forget about Cuba missile crisis. Well, and, and I'm glad you shared that perspective that in your mind, that was more significant than some of the other things you're engaged in. But I'm wondering on a micro level for you, because you spent many nights on the front lines in Korea and in Vietnam, but those days and nights there in Cuba on the edge of a minefield with enemy troops across the way that you don't know who they are or what their capabilities are, can you help us understand what kind of tension or anxiety or anticipation you felt? The military suspected that there was enemy line crossers coming across and spying on the base. To me, I thought that was nonsense because the gate was open and workers came over and worked during the day and went back at night. But anyway, they decided they were going to bring a dog up and go out and catch line crossers. A Navy personnel, a seaman, came up with a big Belgian shepherd. And they said, well, Sergeant, uh, go out. I want you to go out and spend the night with the dog and the sailor. So we went out and laid in the grass on the rifle range. It's raining. The dog's smelling. The dog's getting wet. The sailor says, now, this dog, this is not his training. He's a warehouse dog, and when I let him tell him to go, he's going to attack anybody except me. So you stay on my right side. And I said, that's no problem, because I've got a forty-five with a round in the chamber, and you make sure he stays on your left side. I laid there all night in the rain with the, with the dog. We came back, and they says, okay, uh, you didn't do too good. You didn't catch anybody. We're going to have two dogs tomorrow night. And I said, I need the day off. Uh, I need day of R&R. So I took off, and I went back to the got a ride back to the base and went to the staff NCO club, and I stayed there till it closed at night and then went out and slept under the bushes until next morning when I get back to my unit. But I didn't want to spend another night in the rain with a dog for a minefield with 55,000 mines in it. We had one casualty, young trooper that some way wandered into the minefield, and the staff sergeant had to go out from another company and bring him back, and they hit the mine, and they got shrapnel 
it wasn't considered a war. They did not get a Purple Heart. They got no recognition for it, and it was covered up. Yeah, one of those chapters of history we don't hear all that much about. Uh, while the Vietnam War, a lot has been said about, a lot was written about, and you spent a lot of time over there. How many separate tours did you have in Vietnam? I had three tours in Vietnam. Uh, the first one was a short tour. I was Sioux going uh, on a cruiser firing on the, the coast. And the second two, I was back to uh, infantry with rifle companies. And I know there's so many different things that happened there. Um, but you did get another Purple Heart over there. What happened in that situation? In that situation, we had moved up uh, to, uh, we were in I-Corps. It wasn't that great a deal. We were uh, set up at, on our base, and the first night there, we got 500 rockets on the base. And I think we had 16 killed, And but from... Our base was close enough to North Vietnam where we got rocketed and mortared constantly. Well, about the third or fourth night there, I got hit. I was out manning a position and got hit by shrapnel from a, I think it was a 120 or 40-millimeter rocket. And uh, But it was just shrapnel in the back and shoulder. Well, and there's another kind of close call I want to make sure I ask you about. There was a helicopter. You started to get aboard, and something changed your mind. And while it was tragic for the guys on that helicopter, that your decision saved your life. They told me, we're turning the base over to the Arvins, the, the South Vietnamese. They're going to take the base. And so the helicopters came in and to fly south. And... Uh, Meantime, I had a what we call a water buffalo, a 500-gallon trailer, water trailer, that I had had up on the far support base for our water. It was about the last helicopter. They said, okay, get aboard. And I started to go aboard it, and then I backed out. And I said, nope, I'm not going without my, my water. I'm not giving up my water. I'm not going to let the Arvins have my water trailer. I want my water buffalo, so I got off, and the helicopter went up and got up probably about 10, 12 feet in the air, blew up, and went down. And it had a number of Marines that were killed on there. They think it was probably a rocket. If it wasn't a rocket, it could have been Marines carried their hand grenades in their lapels, in their buttonholes, and they would bend the pins so they would come out easier. And they figured it might have been a hand grenade come out on the helicopter or a rocket. But anyway, I didn't get on it, and I watched it burn, and uh, it, it, it was pretty sad. The water buffalo probably saved my life, or anyway, for going down with a helicopter. Well, and I'm just thinking about everything that we've talked about here. Um, you know, wounded multiple times in Korea. One of them, you got the Purple Heart. Wounded in Vietnam. Mortar round that's a dud that might have killed you. B-52s bombing all around you. The helicopter you're about to go on blows up. You've dodged a lot of bullets, literally and figuratively. How, how do you explain all that? How do you explain the fact that you made it through all that and 
here you are, 90, almost 91, still going strong. And never, never, never had any thoughts about it. It's just something, it's like I've always said, the wicked never die young, and I didn't have to worry. It was just my good friends I lost. When somebody says Semper Fi, or they say once a Marine, always a Marine, what do those things mean to you? That's my life. That's the only thing I've ever been is a Marine. When they play the Marine Corps hymn, it just it just sends deals through my body. I do not regret anything I've ever done. I wish I could have got in a little earlier. Well, and I don't want to forget anything. If there's something that's important to you, please feel free to share. But um, I'm not going to forget to say thank you. Thank you for serving our country, and thank you for telling us this story that nobody else could. Is there something that you would say as you look back over almost 91 years now, you'd say you're most proud of or you're most thankful for? Just being able to serve the country. That's it. And when people come up and thank me for service, you know, I tell them, I want to thank you because you helped provide the country. You paid your taxes. I'm indebted to you for being able to do what I wanted to that I couldn't have done without your support. Bill Helton. He'll turn 91 next month when he and Barbara will also celebrate anniversary number 64. Bill had a few more Marine Corps memories that wouldn't quite fit into our radio time today, but they are included in the podcast version of this episode at hometownheroesradio.com. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you again that freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at ProvidentPayments.com.